Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. On August 20th, Guatemalans will head to the polls to elect their next president, marking the culmination of a long and fraught electoral process. The election will pit Sandra Torres, a longstanding political force heading one of the country's most well-oiled political machines, against unexpected contender Bernardo Arevalo, who surged to claim second place in the June 25th first round elections. From the start, however, this process has been plagued by allegations of misconduct and insider dealing with three leading candidates being disqualified by Guatemala's Supreme Electoral Tribunal before the first round. Following Arevalo's victory in June, the outgoing government of President Alejandro Giamatay opened an investigation into his campaign and sought to bar Arevalo from contesting in the second round. While what seems to be a constitutional crisis in the offing appears to have dissipated for the moment, what happens on August 20th and the weeks to follow will have important implications for a region where democracy seems to be on the back foot. To cover a spate of upcoming elections in Latin America and the Caribbean, 35 West podcast will host a series of special conversations, El Rumbo Democratico, to furnish listeners with insights into some of the region's most important upcoming elections. In today's episode, to help us disentangle the key players, issues, and accusations that are swirling ahead of Guatemala's presidential election, we are joined by Will Freeman, Fellow for Latin American Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. In this episode, we will delve into the state of play in Guatemalan politics, how we got here, and what priorities the United States should have for resetting relations with whoever emerges victorious. Thank you very much for joining us today, Will. Ryan, thanks for having me on. Will, you've spent significant amounts of time in Guatemala in the past, and I understand you are joining us today from there as well. Can you start by sketching for our audience a picture of what the atmosphere in Guatemala feels like? Are there any notable trends you've observed in your recent trips to the country? Sure. So I'm currently in Guatemala, as you mentioned. The last time I was here was July of 2022. Back then, in July 2022, I described the atmosphere as one of, for a lot of people, fear and foreboding. This was a time when you saw increasing numbers of journalists, prosecutors, judges considering going into exile receiving threats, really viewing their work and, and in some cases their lives as being on the line for their efforts to, to probe corruption, denounce corruption. You saw people like Miguel Angel Galvez, a particularly esteemed judge, flee the country just months after that. And a bunch of people I talked to, uh, you know, they had their, ba their bags packed. They were ready to leave the country uh, at a moment's notice. Now, today in August 2023, there's still fear in the country. Since I've been back in the country, I'm looking through my contacts on WhatsApp. I message people. Sometimes I find out people have quietly left, gone into exile, and I didn't even know it. There's also hope today in 2023, which you didn't notice before, for two big reasons, I'd say. One is that in the midst of this constitutional crisis that you mentioned, we've seen a civil society coalition come together. It's not ideological. It's not drawing just from one part of civil society to the other. It's a broad right, center, left coalition that's come together to say that Guatemala needs to remain a procedural democracy. There need to be regular free and fair elections. I think that that's given people a sense of insurance that the country's future isn't lost. And a number of fence sitters who weren't willing to denounce corruption and anti-democratic behavior before are now doing it. 
And the other reason that there's hope is that we see this really unexpected development uh, where you have the rise of Bernardo Arevalo and his seed movement party and Movimiento Semilla, who really have come out of nowhere to contest the runoff for the presidency, running a threadbare campaign made up mostly of people in their 20s and 30s. And I think it's given a number of Guatemalans who want to vote against the current political system a sense that they still have an option, that they aren't voting between, you know, the lesser of two evils. Will, you wrote a foreign affairs article before the first round about the legacy of Guatemala's nearly four-decade civil war and how it continues to exert influence on the political elite's mindset. Could you unpack for our audience how this history influences the developments we're seeing today? Sure. Well, one caveat, there's not just one political elite in Guatemala, nor one elite writ large. This is a country where power is very fragmented. There's a number of very wealthy, powerful families that tend to loom large. But there's also what Guatemalans call emerging elites, people who've built their fortunes in the last few decades since the country became a democracy, in some cases through corruption, in other cases through ties with organized crime, and in some other cases through above ground businesses. But that's all to say that it's a complex scenario, it's a complex landscape of different elites. But for some of them, surely the armed conflict still looms large. So a difference I've noticed between Guatemala and other countries in the region that experienced armed conflicts, where I've spent time like Peru or Colombia, is that in Guatemala, the conflict feels like it was yesterday. It's still so alive, maybe because of its long duration, it was 36 years, maybe because of its intensity, maybe because it reached all parts of society and the country. You still hear people today in Guatemala remember in episodes from the conflict as if they were yesterday. Now, on one side, there are the powerful families I mentioned that bankrolled the counterinsurgency in Guatemala. This was really a formative experience for them. They see themselves as different from elites in other Central American countries that, you know, sometimes went into exile, left their countries. They see themselves as having to have fought this counterinsurgency basically alone after the late 1970s without U.S. support. And it really kind of cultivated a sense of nationalism among some of these elites. Now, the, the insurgency was ultimately crushed in Guatemala. But the war left behind a mindset that I think among those elites I was just mentioning lives on. They see attempts to deeply reform the state or to pursue truth and reckoning or even investigate state-sponsored crimes as really being a second coming of insurgency in disguise. You'll meet elites among this sector who will say, you know, that judge or that prosecutor is actually a member of the guerrilla only in judicial robes. And that, that's really something that they'll say. Now, so you saw, uh, you know, elites take this, this posture that reforms were a second coming of insurgency with the peace accord in 1996 in Guatemala. You also saw it uh, as a response to the investigations of the UN-backed CCIG, the commission uh, that investigated impunity and corruption in Guatemala. On the other hand, you know, the, the folks who I mentioned who are fleeing the country, who are going into exile, I think they're also, you know, in a way, remembering the years of the armed conflict very viscerally. Some of them said that for them, these recent years have felt like the late 1970s, another time when journalists, folks who denounced corruption, were forced to flee the country as well. That's all to say that, that these memories are still very fresh in Guatemala. I think they give all the political developments here a certain emotional charge they might not have necessarily in other uh, post-conflict countries. To understand why the 2023 election season in Guatemala has proven such a contentious and volatile moment, we need to turn back the clock at the very least to 2015 when Arevalo's party, Semilla, was founded following mass anti-corruption protests in the country. Now, Arevalo's performance in the first round was unanticipated, as you mentioned, Will, by virtually every analyst here in D.C. where I'm sitting, and I think safe to say in Guatemala where you're sitting. 
What was the reason for this surprising showing, and why did so many observers seem inclined to write off Arevalo and Semilla? Oh, yeah, I see three reasons for this surprising showing, as you mentioned. One is that Guatemala is a young country, and it's still growing demographically. There are a lot of young voters in this country, millennials and Gen Z, who want an alternative to a political system that they feel has failed them. That largely urban young vote was looking for a candidate to support. But as this electoral process went on, as you saw a number of, of prominent critics of the status quo eliminated from the ballot, Semilla and Bernardo Arevalo almost remained as the only viable alternative to voting for continuity. So that's one reason. Second is that Semilla took a very principled approach to how it did politics over the last few years. So it entered Congress for the first time with seven deputies in 2019. That's a tiny block in a Congress of 160 members. And then what Simia did is, is very unusual for Guatemalan politics. Instead of trying to build bridges with other parties, kind of play the traditional political game, expand their footprint outside their stronghold in Guatemala City, you know, in the words of their, the leader of their legislative bloc, Samuel Perez, they built alliances outside Congress, not inside. So they built alliances with groups of young voters, as I mentioned, with civil society groups. And they did so on the basis of denouncing corruption in the Giamatei government. They did not, again, you know, play this kind of traditional game. Now, I think that's a very risky strategy. I, for one, didn't expect it to succeed. But I think what it showed voters is that they were sort of uncompromised. They did not have the same you know, entanglements as a lot of other political parties and candidates on the ballot. They could really claim to be something different and new. And then finally, the third factor. I mean, I think that it's really that elimination I mentioned of the better known opposition candidates, people like Roberto Arzu, Carlos Pineda, Thelma Cabrera, that opened space for Arevalo to rise. The Electoral Tribunal appeared to many as in the pocket of the elite during the run-up to the election, but the country's justice system has seemingly stood firm in the face of efforts to disqualify Arevalo after his first-round win. What accounts for this about-face, and what does this say about the relative health of Guatemalan democracy, as seen through the lens of checks and balances? Again, I'm not sure there's one elite in Guatemala. I think this is a fragmented constellation of, of different families, political parties, new elites, old elites. And I think that what this episode showed was that none of those groups is powerful enough to dominate the other. So although the TSC had been acting, let's say, in the interest of established political parties who did not want to see these critics of the system come on the ballot this electoral cycle, it looks like in the end that the TSC also had somewhat of its own space to maneuver. Or maybe there were other elite interests there that saw value in preserving relatively free and fair elections and pushed back the other way. In the end, what we saw is that the TSC pushed back against the public prosecutor's office. It probably didn't, you know, its magistrates didn't appreciate being bullied, pushed around by Attorney General Consuelo Porras. In the end, you know, TSC unexpectedly became this kind of a savior of democracy. There's a political scientist, Luca Wei, who's coined the term pluralism by default. What he means by that is that some democracies survive, not because they have particularly robust democratic institutions, not because political leaders in these countries are fervent Democrats, but because power is too fragmented for any one group to dominate the other. I think that's what we're seeing in Guatemala today. Fortunately, there's no sort of hegemon here. There's no, Giamate doesn't have a dominant party that can sideline all of his competitors. And that's given enough breathing room for actors, institutional actors like the TSE, to stake out their own positions. Corruption and anti-corruption in Guatemala have acquired powerful political connotations. This was true in 2015 and even more so in the post-CC status quo. In your opinion, to what extent is genuine anti-corruption symbolized through practical policy reforms on the ballot this year in Guatemala? 
Encouragingly, I think it is on the ballot. But let me take one step back. You mentioned that anti-corruption, corruption polarized the country. I couldn't agree more. The CCIG started off as an experiment to root out criminal structures that were left over from the armed conflict in Guatemala. That was its mandate. But over time, you know, critics of the CCIG would say engaged in mission creep. It started to investigate more and more types of criminal activity, began to investigate illicit campaign finance, and eventually its investigations implicated practically everyone of significance in the private sector, in politics. Really, the CCIG cast a wide net, and this was extremely polarizing. There were Guatemalans who saw CCIG as a foreign intervention, was thwarting national sovereignty. There were Guatemalans who fervently supported CCIG, thought it was going to finally fix the sort of birth defects of the Guatemalan political system. And then there were the people in the middle who often supported CCIG in the beginning, but became more doubtful over time. Guatemala is really still grappling with the wounds of that period on all sides. It's a traumatic period for a lot of people when you talk about it. Fortunately, Bernardo Lorevelo, the candidate from the uh, Semilla party, I think recognizes that. So his approach to anti-corruption, and he's made this clear, is not focused on prosecution. He sees the public prosecutor's office as an independent institution. It's not his agenda, his prerogative as president to say who should be prosecuted, what type of crime should be prosecuted. Instead, his anti-corruption reforms are the practical sort that you mentioned. They deal with, for instance, an initiative to pass a new civil service law, which will hopefully eliminate all the ghost employees who uh, infamously you know, haunt the halls of uh, different Guatemalan uh, bureaucracies. He's also talked about digitizing a number of the public contracting processes. So there won't be the opportunity to demand up to 70% of contracts in the form of bribes, as is currently occurring, according to a number of people I talked to. On top of that, you know, he sees corruption as a problem of the public budget. This is a budget that needs to become more efficient. There needs to be better accounting for how public money is spent. That's Arevalo's approach to corruption. It's, it's not so punitive. Torres, for her part, hasn't talked as much about anti-corruption. I mean, she gestures to it broadly, but she's been more focused on bread and butter economic issues, as well as crime and social issues, uh, where she's quite conservative. And, you know, this is probably for a reason. Torres herself was investigated by CCIG, although uh, the investigation did not lead to, to a conviction or a sentence. She was investigated for illicit campaign finance, and it's been a bit of a skeleton in her closet ever since. Let's dig a little deeper into what Guatemala might look like post-election and the kinds of policy platforms both candidates would look to adopt. Both candidates, as you mentioned, espouse roughly center-left political orientations, though Torres has tacked increasingly to the right with her current campaign, especially when it comes to cultural and social issues like same-sex marriage and abortion. What are the key issues of divergence between these two candidates, and where could we expect to see similarities regardless of who wins? The big divergence is, do they represent the system already in place? Do they come from that system, or are they proposing something new? That's the difference that most Guatemalans are interested in, right? I don't think they're that interested in these other differences about, oh, the particular policy proposal on how to tackle extortion or, or frankly, even these social issues. I'm not sure that those have the same purchase. In terms of the system-anti-system divide, look, Sandra Torres, she was first lady. She, this is her third time running for president. She is the leader of the UNE, the, the largest and oldest political party in Guatemala. It's impossible for her not to identify herself with the political system, both, you know, some of its achievements, but also many of its shortcomings. Arevalo comes from outside. He was a sociologist. He worked, you know, years ago as a cabinet level position in, in Guatemala, but that was the 90s. Ever since he's been working in the NGO world, he's someone who can claim to be entirely outside this thing. So I think that's really where you see the candidates differentiated. But we can talk a little bit about, about their policy proposals as well. 
Now, Sandra Torres, her accusation against Samia is that they have a Santa Claus list of proposals, that all of their proposals are uh, they're not viable, there's no path to completing them. I think that's, that's an overly harsh criticism, although there are real concerns about how Arevalo can govern with, with such a small party in the legislature, with um, a relatively small, very new political party, and few people lined up to fill all the jobs he'd have to fill. Sandra Torres has said that, by contrast, you know, she can deliver on bread and butter needs for the Guatemalan people. She's famous, or if you ask some people, infamous for running a social program, much like Brazil's Bolsa Familia, although a bit less effective, which uh, has been distributing foodstuffs and other goods and kind as a form of social welfare for years. At her rallies, she even has you know assistants on stage who hold, hold up bags of foodstuffs and say, this is what you'll get if you vote for me. So in that sense, she's still true to her kind of left populist economic roots. But as you mentioned, she's been tacking to the right on social issues, accusing uh, Samia of being sort of a far left party in that sense of representing the so-called Agenda 2030, of wanting to impose kind of foreign progressive social values on Guatemala. Samia, for its part, is saying that, and they've told me this directly, that they don't play identity politics. That's not what they're interested in, that they want this election to be about corruption, a change to the political system. But again, it all depends on sort of which candidate you trust more. I think one thing that will be similar, regardless of who wins, is the macro economy. And that's probably a good thing for Guatemala. Look, this is a country which has a deeply flawed economy in many ways. Six in 10 people live in poverty. Child malnutrition in indigenous areas can reach you know, up to seven, eight out of 10 of every child born. But on the macroeconomic picture, Guatemala does okay. There's relatively steady and high growth. Uh, inflation is low. I do think that uh, neither candidate is proposing economic policies that would uh, rock the boat in that sense. Guatemala is one of 13 countries globally and seven in Latin America that recognize Taiwan instead of the PRC. Given Arevalo has pledged to keep relations with Taipei, even as he also speaks of increasing ties with Beijing, what does the future of Taiwan in Guatemala look like under an Arevalo government? What about under a Torres government? Frankly, I don't think we have very clear signals on this. Neither of them has staked out a radically different position than the other, uh, although, as you mentioned, Arevalo has talked about potentially increasing ties to Beijing. I wouldn't rule out Torres doing the same thing. She's also interested, uh, you know, as I mentioned, in sort of the bottom line economically in terms of delivering development for her rural, mostly poor base. So I think both of them could, could see sort of temptation in drawing closer to Beijing, trying to squeeze that relationship um, if it's established for, for any economic benefits. Meanwhile, I think Taiwan, and this is a broader problem in the region, it's just struggled to keep up. It's struggled to offer enough as, as a relatively small country to balance the scales and, and keep Latin American countries interested in maintaining the relationship. So it's a bit of a wild card. Security is a topic of growing interest throughout the region, with Guatemala being no exception. Fellow presidential hopeful Suri Rios advocated for the country to adopt a hardline security policy in line with neighboring El Salvador, the so-called Plan Bukele. What could we expect from either a Torres or an Arevalo policy to address the challenges facing Guatemala from organized crime? Yeah, one big difference here. Before that, one point. So Zuri Rios, as you mentioned, tried to make this a law and order election. Didn't work. That's not the issue most Guatemalans are concerned about. That's not to say Guatemala doesn't deal with insecurity. The homicide rate is 17 out of 100,000. But that's considerably lower than some of its neighbors. Again, this is an election about corruption, about the political system. Now, on security... Torres proposes essentially Bukele light. I'd call her model Bukele light. She wants a lot of the optics, the aesthetics of a Bukele policy, but she's not really proposing something as radical as even what Xiomara Castro is doing next door in Honduras. I don't think we would see a sweeping state of exception, but you might see police 
encouraged to, to take a tougher hand, you know, in terms of engaging with organized crime groups, maybe a few less scruples over, over civil liberties. That's probably a regional trend. Now, under Arevalo, I think we'll see something actually different. He talks a lot more about using intelligence to fight back against organized crime, about linking anti-crime and anti-corruption operations together. With him, I think we'd see a bit of a revival of the, the CCs, pretty successful anti-crime and, and the, the public prosecutor offices, pretty successful anti-crime programs of the 2010s. Now, remember that in the late 2000s, Guatemala was spiraling towards a situation where it had Mexico or El Salvador or Honduras level crime rates. The right. public prosecutor's office, in league with the CC in those years, managed to cut the homicide rate in half in just, in just a few years. It was really a remarkable achievement. Uh, Revelo takes inspiration from that, and I think he would try to revive a similar approach. No matter the victor on Sunday, the outcome of Guatemala's elections will carry important regional implications for North and South America alike. The United States in particular has sought to partner with Guatemala on a range of issues, most notably migration, but has been stymied by poor relations with the Giamatai government. How can the Biden administration reset relations with Guatemala, regardless of the ultimate victor on Sunday? You know, I think that the Biden administration has done an excellent job setting itself up to reset relations. Uh, and I've even heard from the staff of Democrats and Republicans on the Hill that they view the election, you know, regardless of the outcome, there's a chance to turn the page to improve things from where they've been under uh, GMT, uh, which is frosty, to, to put it mildly, hostile, if you want to be honest. So, you know, where will things go from here? I think with Arevalo, it's a very smooth path forward. I think Arevalo has every incentive to build a very close partnership with the Biden administration. Members of Semilla told me they realized that because of their small legislative block, they're going to need to rely on all the international support they can get, especially once they start pursuing anti-corruption reforms, which could rock the boat uh, domestically in terms of politics and, and earn them some opponents. I think with Torres, she'd have less of an incentive to partner closely with Washington. If she wins, she's going to uh, have the largest group of legislators in Congress. She's been around so long. She understands how the system works. I wouldn't put it past her to get control of other state institutions. I think she'll be emboldened. And I don't think she'll be looking to Washington for directives or many favors. That's to say that I think Torres might stake out more of an independent line. But I think that they're both poised to improve things from where they stand with GMFA. Guatemala is not the only country heading to the polls. Ecuador is holding its own snap elections on the 20th to decide a new president and national assembly. I know you cover that country extensively as well, Will. Are there any common threads you can trace between the Guatemalan and Ecuadorian cases? What implications do these elections carry for democracy in the hemisphere as a whole? On the surface, there are definitely some common threads. In both countries, crime is an issue, of course, much more so in Ecuador than Guatemala. In both countries, corruption and polarization stirred up by anti-corruption efforts has also uh, really colored these elections. In Ecuador, you know, there's this contest between the followers of ex-president Rafael Correa, himself convicted in abstention for corruption, and Correa's opponents. In Guatemala, as I've mentioned, it's this uh, clash between representatives of the old political system and their critics. But in both cases, you know, the issue of corruption, anti-corruption is really a live wire. And then finally, I'll say that they're both elections which have so far, and this goes for the entire region for that matter, which have so far really put a premium on political outsiders. Arevalo has done remarkably well, despite a real shortfall, a real deficit in terms of resources, uh, even political organization against Sandra Torres so far in the polls. And in Ecuador, we've also seen a number of outsider candidates who were relatively lesser known really holding their own against the much better established party of ex-president Correa in the polls. So you have, for instance, tragically, the candidate who was just slain, Fernando Villavicencio, 
being one such candidate, right, running with a, a pretty unknown and, and new political party. Another Jan Topic, who tries to sort of style himself as the Bukele of Ecuador, he's also running as somewhat of an outsider. That's nothing special. We're seeing that all over Latin America. But in these two countries in particular, voters are looking for somebody who's different than the system, somebody who's not compromised or at least can portray themselves as not entangled in it. And that's why I think we've seen candidates like Arevalo, Villavicencio, Topic break onto the scene. Will Freeman, Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, thanks so much for joining us today on this special episode of 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Ron. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.